good good evening everyone um yeah well welcome to this evening my name is jacob reynolds i'm the partnerships manager at the academy of ideas and one of the conveners of this uh, international salon um and as many of you hopefully know i mean well we at the academy of ideas we organize public events and debates on a range of themes um and after a long spell online um we have recently been delighted to return to in-person events, most notably our Battle of Ideas uh, Festival events, which ran towards the end of last year. Um, but as much as we've enjoyed being together in person, there's no denying that being online has a number of advantages, especially for international uh, themes such as this one. So uh, we will We wanted to continue running some uh, online events and set up the inter this international salon as a forum for uh, for doing that and has really created an opportunity for people uh, across the world where possible to gather and interrogate the major issues of our time. And of course, tonight's issue could scarcely be of greater international importance. Um, whilst tensions between the rest the West and Russia are, of course, hardly new, both in more recent times, um, but also over a much longer horizon. Uh, whilst, whilst it might be new, the current escalation in tensions nonetheless um, feels specific and new. And Russia obviously feels it has uh, no choice but to now force this issue of European security to the top of the agenda and to do so now. Um, and for the West's part, this appears to be uh, the first major foreign policy test for the West since, and for America since the humiliating withdrawal in Afghanistan and comes at a time when many insist that old rivalries with Russia should uh, be downplayed in favor of new ones with China. And for both parties, uh, the West and Russia, there are major domestic issues that are shaping this conflict and giving it um, a new impetus, whether that be uh, the question of energy, whether it's inter-European rivalries, whether it's domestic issues such as Joe Biden's um, struggling approval ratings or Boris Johnson's parties and the rest of it. Um, that's just for the West. And then of course for uh, Russia, um, the height of the pandemic, economic sluggishness, and the much debated question of what happens uh, after Putin. So there's much to discuss um, and much to unravel. And thankfully tonight, we couldn't uh, have two better speakers that would help us get to grips with this. So I'll introduce them briefly in the order in which they will speak. First, we have Professor Frank Faradi. Frank is a sociologist and commentator, having been professor of sociology uh, for many years. He's the author of a huge range of books, um, some from many years ago, including the Soviet Union Demystified, de and more recently, uh, a one called 100 Years of Identity Crisis, Culture War Over Social uh, Socialization. He's also a frequent and prolific commentator on radio, TV, and in print. So I'm delighted to, be, to have Frank with us. And then we'll hear um, from Mary Dijewski. Mary is an international affairs correspondent for The Independent, having previously been their foreign correspondent in Moscow, Paris, and Washington. She's written about the collapse of communism from inside Moscow and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. She's written about the Iraq war and is really a key authority on Russian politics and uh, diplomacy between uh, Russia and the West. And her articles, it must be said, are among the few in the UK press that even attempt to portray a balanced view of Russian motivations and indeed Eastern European politics more broadly. So we'll hear from them um, for five, six minutes or so each by way of instruction. I might follow up with a question, but then the aim, as with all Academy of Ideas events, is really to get out 
to the audience as soon as possible, hear your questions and comments and really try and make this a genuine public discussion. Now, one quick word before we uh, kick off, we at the Academy of Ideas are committed to holding open public and where possible like tonight, uh, free events. We rely on the generous support from those who share our mission of expanding the boundaries of public debate. Um, and so any contributions, large or small, regular or one-off are really greatly appreciated. You can support us by heading to academyofideas.org.uk slash support, uh, and we'll gratefully receive any donations that you might wish to make. Uh, but that is enough from me uh, for now and enough by way of introduction. I'm excited to uh, kick off this important discussion. So um, we'll head over to hear from uh, Frank first. So Frank. I, I kind of struggle with the current situation because it doesn't make very much geopolitical logic in the way things have played out. And certainly since the end of the Cold War, and the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, diplomacy has really followed a pattern that doesn't make very much sense for either side. And I remember in 1999, when Poland and Hungary and, and the Czech Republic were formally admitted into NATO, uh, George F. Kennan, who is really the doyen of Soviet policy experts, and who developed the whole strategy of containment against the Soviet Union was very much surprised and alarmed by the way that NATO had expanded into East Europe. And at the time he said, and I quote, expanding NATO would be the most faithful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. Such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western, and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion. They have an adverse effect on the development of Russian democracy to restore the atmosphere of the Cold War to East-West relations and to impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. That was George F. Kennan, and he was a major architect the whole Cold War strategy uh, promoted by the United States. And he basically knew what he was talking about. And at the time, all the leading geopolitical players in the State Department took a very similar view. So for example, uh, James Baker, the old Secretary of State, uh, gave guarantees to Gorbachev that uh, NATO would not expand into the region. And in fact, he made this very famous statement to Gorbachev when he said, not one inch eastward. And that was the basic position at that particular stage in time. And of course, today we hear in the, uh, in the press uh, voices that say that the Russians have invented these commitments. They were never made in the first place. But that's not actually true. Because for example, in, in 2017, the National Security Archive in Washington declassified all the documents, which demonstrate very, very clearly that these assurances were actually made. So there is a problem here. And the problem is, is that somehow geopolitical rationality seems to have broken down. 
and in particular the United States has lost sight of its uh, its own national interest. And possibly this happened because of its very uh, important unipolar position that it established in the uh, at the turn of the 21st century. But in a sense, a unipolar situation is not one of stability. It is one that creates a, an, an inherently fluid balance of power situation, which I, I would suggest at the moment is very difficult to achieve. I want to raise four problems, uh, four problems that I haven't written about or haven't discussed, which I think are quite important for the discussion. The first problem is that Western diplomacy is complicated by the fact that it finds it very difficult to elaborate a clear narrative of national and geopolitical interests. I think if you look at the people that work for the State Department or the Foreign Office, they really are inhabited by second place, uh, second rate placeholders. Uh, they're influenced by advocacy organizations, NGOs, who have a disproportionate influence on the kind of policies that are being pursued. Just to give you an example, the Biden administration uh, features dozens and dozens of officials hailing from the Center for American Progress, which is a, an, an American think tank, an influential one, set up by John Podesta, who used to be very close to the Clinton uh, administration, and with George Soros's generous contribution. And if you look at the, the relationship between the Center for American Progress and the State Department, you'll find that they have provided dozens and dozens and dozens of people to have into very important positions in the State Department. And the people that have got these jobs are not uh, fully trained diplomats. They're not people that have come to the ranks who speak foreign languages and really grasp geopolitical realities. They're people who actually do not understand what is going on in Russia or what is going on in very large parts of Europe. They have a very distorted view of external reality. And yet they're the people that are in charge of the foreign policy. And I think if you look at Britain and the role of various NGOs, look at the people that are uh, running the foreign office, uh, it is actually quite shocking how badly they compare with the people that ran the foreign office 30, 40, 50 years ago. First problem. The second problem is that the West has gained considerable moral authority as the leader of the free world. And during the Cold War, that uh, uh, authority that came with being associated with the free world uh, was very much uh, in, very important in providing a degree of coherence and clarity to what the West was really all about. Now, the ideological resources that underpinned the free world have clearly become exhausted in the recent decades. And therefore, what you will find is that although Western societies are meant to be united in NATO and various other bodies, this unity is not really underwritten by any clarity about what it is that binds these societies together. Now, what the uh, America has tried to do, what the Department of State has tried to do, is to uh, try to universalize what it sees as its post-liberal values. And in particular, if you look at the American State Department, they've tried to 
universalized prevailing cultural norms associated with identity politics, particularly in relation to gender, but also to LGBTQ ideology and various assorted issues to do with inclusion and diversity. We saw that these values didn't go down all that well in Afghanistan. And I think in general, you'll find that uh, in most societies, the attempt to universalize the outlook of the operators in the State Department is, is, is likely to come up short. It's not going to provide anything like the alternative that the free world ideology had in a previous era. And yet, despite that, America seems to be determined to impose its moral values on the rest of the world. There's a kind of uh, silly arrogance that seems to be at work here, but there's, an, there, there, there's a kind of sensibility that we are aware America knows what needs to be done and will educate the rest of the world into these values that we've cobbled together in recent decades. Problem three, uh, the divisions in the West are really quite substantial. They're very rarely discussed openly, but there's a lot of evidence uh, that there is uh, a lot of difficulties here. Europe has been more or less isolated from the American-Russia interaction. Europe is not really meant to be in charge anymore of its own security arrangements. So, for example, when Biden sent the 3,000 troops into the area, it didn't do it through Europe. It didn't even do it through NATO. It just merely sent uh, unilaterally uh, these kind of troops over there. And it seems to me that what you have is a complicated situation where divisions of interests, conflicts of interest between France and Germany, between Poland and Germany, between various different players, on the one hand, are paralleled by the growing coming together of an informal Sino-Russian alliance, which I think is quite significant because although there is no long-term strategic basis for China and Russia to collaborate, they have, they have a lot of conflicts of their own, regional ones, nevertheless, in the present context, they, have, they are essentially decided that they're going to watch each other's back, which has got very important implications because it means that the use of the economic weapon, the use of sanctions and other tools by America in particular are likely to be far less effective than they were in the aftermath of, of the Crimea affair or, or, or previously. I think it is very much the case that, for example, <coughs> excuse me, China is providing a lot of leverage for Russia to use. And there's even talk that Russia is going to build a new pipeline, energy pipeline towards China and avoid having to deal with all the, all the flak that the, that the building of Nord Stream 2 poses uh, in the European kind of context. So we have this situation where, uh, in a sense, a new alliance has been created almost as if by pushing them into each other's hands by uh, the silliness of Western geopolitics. Problem four. Nobody wants a war. I don't think the Russians want a war. Very clearly, they, you know, they're, they're not interested in invading the Ukraine, and they're not interested in starting a major global war with America or anybody else. Neither does the United States. They're not in a position 
uh, to get involved in a serious military conflict. Uh, but the trouble is that when you have an unsettled balance of power and when geopolitics are handled by diplomatically illiterate operatives, anything can happen. I want to end by saying that perhaps it would be useful for people who are listening to reread E.H. Carr's 20th century, 20 years crisis. It's a very interesting book. Uh, and particularly what's interesting about the book, this is, this is really about the period between 1919 and 1939, is that it is above all a critique of the utopian vision of liberal idealists like President Wilson in the United States, uh, who have who messed things up by having this kind of uh, incoherent geopolitical view of the world. And I think that critique of, of the utopian idealists, uh, the Wilsonites, can readily be applied to the cosmopolitan sensibility influencing Western diplomacy. I think that uh, more than a dose of sensible geopolitical uh, realism is needed to restore diplomacy, a kind of diplomacy that's more attuned to both national and global interests. That will eventually happen. But for it to happen, the, uh, the governments of Western societies need somehow to stop listening to Amnesty International, stop listening to the dozens of uh, NGOs that are, that are almost interchangeable with the people working in, the, in their offices and starts to begin to ask the question, what is in the, what is rationally interest of their own nation? Thank you. Thanks very much, Frank. Um, that was a very uh, helpful and thorough overview. Um, so I'll just head straight over to Mary um, and we'll hear from you. And then I think we'll probably be uh, uh, going out to the audience pretty soon. So uh, Mary. Um, well, thank you so much for the invitation to come and speak to you. Um, and I was actually going to say something about the um, all the downsides of not appearing at events in person, but the upside over the last two years has been the internationalization of so many meetings, just the much wider participation than the sort of narrow circles that often you find um, in London or when you travel. Um, so I think that is a real upside. So I'm very keen on these sort of events. Um, I'm also like to say just um, really as a sort of preface that um, probably some people, maybe quite a few people in the audience tend to think of me as um, taking, let's say, a more um, favorable view of Russia than a lot of people who talk about these subjects. But I want to make something clear which is that I think um, there's, at the moment there's a, the, the, there's a very negative tendency which says that if you try to understand how things look from Russia, then you're basically anti-Ukrainian. You don't, you, you don't um, support independence or um, sovereignty for Ukraine. You take a view that it should be subordinate, um, that what happened in 1991 should be reversed. Um, and I do not take that view. Um, I try to look at how things seem from Moscow, but I'm also very much in favor of an independent Ukraine. I'm a huge enthusiast for it. I love going to Ukraine. It's incredibly interesting, um, especially over the last five or six years. Um, it's taken a different path from Russia. It's, um, it's a very 
varied country. It's very accessible. Um, you can have a great time in Ukraine. It's easy to get around. Um, the, the just the atmosphere, at least. Um, I, I was last there in October, um, and I hadn't been obviously for eighteen months through the through through the pandemic, um, but. I find it just a very, very interesting and in many ways an admirable place to be. Um, and I also think that the current president has um, suffered, um, Volodymyr Zelensky has suffered in a way because his election was totally unpredicted by many of the people that um, Frank was talking about in rather disparaging terms in places like the Foreign Office and the State Department. Um, and they've really, until very recently, and maybe even now, taken quite a patron, what I feel has been quite a patronizing view of Zelensky. Um, I watched him give a 90-minute press conference last Friday where he was talking about all the issues that are currently in play. And to my mind, he has emerged as one of the calmest, most responsible leaders throughout this crisis. And I think it's high time that the West in particular stopped patronizing Zelensky and started treating him as a fully paid up national leader with the genuine national interest of Ukraine um, at the heart of everything that, 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 that he does and says. So uh, just a, a small plug there for um, Ukraine and President Zelensky. Um, to get back to what I was, uh, to my prepared remarks, um, the, the subject for tonight has been cast in a very, um, very wide terms as Russia and the West. So something more than just the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And I think that's right because I tend to look at the Russia-Western standoff over Ukraine that we, we've been watching over the last few weeks um, as a symptom of the much wider problems that have existed for a very long time between Russia and the West. They're problems that go back at least 15 years, and you could argue that they go back as far as the collapse of the Soviet Union. Looking at the long term, the big picture is Russia's demand. You could say um, its need, if you look at it as seen from Moscow, for new security arrangements for Europe, which would include Russia rather than drawing a new Cold War line further east than it used to be. Currently, um, Russia sees, and I think it's not wrong to see, um, something similar to a Berlin Wall type of east-west block type of border now existing between Russia and the West. All the countries that used to be in the, in the Soviet bloc pretty much, they're now in part of either in the EU or in NATO or both. And that's how Russia looks at it. The new, the new east-west border is right up against its own frontiers. Dmitry Medvedev tried to initiate some sort of talks about a new security order for Europe when he was briefly president between 2008 and 2012. That's when Putin sort of stepped back, according to the constitution, was prime minister, and everybody referred to the pair of them as the tandem in charge of Russia. And it looks as though Putin is trying something similar again. Um, but I think it's taken on a new sense of urgency because it seems to me that he's looking at it as though it's really just a matter of time before Ukraine joins NATO. 
Putin had this rather neat expression saying it, either it's Ukraine in NATO or it might be NATO in Ukraine. And it's really NATO's expansion, whatever form it takes, that lies at the heart of this. Um, and I absolutely agree with Frank and with um, the quotation that he read from Cannon that this uh, that the expansion of NATO right up to Russia's borders is a colossal mistake. And it's something really that's poisoned the whole atmosphere of the last 25 years. And whether you believe that the West broke a promise or not, um, I almost think it doesn't matter because it's the perception that counts and Moscow genuinely believes that a promise was given and a promise was broken. And I think that the documents that we've seen coming out over the last three years from Washington do actually um, support Russia's view. Um, second point I'd like to make is that the, is the start of the latest crisis. It's usually traced to American intelligence reports that were leaked to journalists in December about Russian troops massing near the Ukrainian border um, and the description of an invasion as imminent. In some ways, this was a replay of troop movements uh, in Russia back in April when they basically come to nothing and they'd sort of dissolved all over the place. And it's a question really of how close they were to the Ukrainian border at all. Some of them seem to have been at least 200, 300 miles away in their barracks. This time though, rather in contrast to what happened in April was that Washington started to sound some very loud alarms um, and London followed. And uh, I mean, as I see what's been happening over the last month, in some ways, the whole crisis has been led, it's been driven by these two English speaking governments. And then it's been amplified by the English speaking media. Elsewhere um, in continental Europe, in France and Germany, both the leaders and, uh, and the media, it seems to me, have been rather more cautious and more circumspect. Third point I'd like to make is about the Russian side of this. And I think it's hard to say which is, which is chicken and which, which is the egg as far as Russia is concerned. Um, Russia presented two documents in December um, via its foreign ministry. They came almost out of the blue. I, think, I don't think anybody was expecting them. And Russia called them draft treaties on European security. And it presented one to the Americans and one to NATO. And some people, some both commentators and people in both in NATO and, and in Washington, um, uh, saw those documents, saw those draft treaties as they were presented by Moscow um, as an ultimatum and they took very much against them. That's not how, that, that's not how I saw them. Um, I saw them as I think quite a lot of other people saw them as really um, as an opening position, as an opening gambit in the hope that, might, that, that, that there might be some bargaining that would follow. Now, some people see the troop buildup on Ukraine's borders, and I think it's true to say there has been a troop buildup, though um, how malevolent its intentions really are and how big it actually is, I think are both worth challenging. I'm not sure that we've quite heard the whole truth about that. Um, but some see that troop buildup as what might be called coercive diplomacy. Um, as a sort of um, uh, as 
giving those documents a push, um, illustrating, showing that, um, that Russia is backing its demands or its opening position um, with a degree of armed strength. But as I say, I don't see them. Uh, I don't see them as an ultimatum. I see the proposals as um, as an attempt to attract Western attention and to try to get some talking going. Whereas before, there wasn't there wasn't really any talking at all. Um, so, from Russia's point of view, you could also say that. The combination of the two documents and the troops on the border has actually been highly effective. Um, United States and NATO were back at the negotiating table within a couple of weeks, um, which you have to say is quite um, quite effective diplomacy on Russia's part. Um, but I think there's a downside to it, which is, in a way, it's it's unfortunate, but also a, a bit of a sad commentary on the state of Western uh, Russian relations, because in some ways it reminds me a bit of um, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, who was sort of firing missiles into the Sea of Japan um, a few years ago, trying desperately to get American attention or even international attention at all. Um, and nobody would take him seriously. Obama rebuffed all his overtures. And it wasn't until he got Trump who seemed to understand what, uh, what Kim was really wanting um, and gave him that, um, that summit, that high profile summit meeting, um, that things started to calm down. So I think, you know, attention seeking is, uh, maybe behind some of what some of what Russia is about at the moment and I think that's you know, it partly reflect, reflects maybe Russia's weakness but it also reflects the extent to which it's felt frozen out of mainstream diplomacy and you know that's not a good position for Russia to be in but it's also not a good attitude for the West to take because Russia is a big country it's a powerful country it's a nuclear country it may have been weak for 20 out of the last 30 years but it's now gaining in strength and it's getting itself a bit of a um, multilateral following in what uh, Russia likes to call Eurasia so I think um, Russia needs to be taken seriously to that extent. But as a fourth point, I'd just like to offer you maybe a, a different interpretation of the Russian troop buildup, as well as attention seeking and as well as um, maybe a bit of coercive diplomacy to plug its, national, its um, European security documents. Um, I don't think you should rule out that Russia feels genuinely threatened by the approach of a bigger, richer, more high-tech armed alliance approaching its borders, and that the purpose of the troop movements and the um, and the strategy documents are actually um, that they represent a defensive position on Russia's side, not an aggressive, expansionist, or assertive position. Now, I know a lot of people uh, a lot of people say, well, what was possible what Russia possibly got to be afraid of in NATO? NATO is a purely defensive alliance. Some people say, well, and the defense secretary said so about two weeks ago that it was uh, when Russia complains as it sometimes does about encirclement that it's 
that the, the NATO countries up against Russia's borders currently account for only 16% of Russia's borders. But I would say to that, well, yes, but what 16%? It's a very important 16% Russia's borders with Europe as it sees it. And to Russia, things look quite different from how they, from how they look to the West. It doesn't seem to me that if you take this view of Russia taking a defensive rather than offensive position, doesn't mean that the situation currently is any less dangerous. The misperceptions and jumpiness on either side can lead to mistakes um, and mistakes can lead to very, very bad situations. But it does mean that instead of threatening Russia, Russia with reprisals, the West should be trying to make it feel less threatened and more secure. And this, of course, is the perennial argument. Does Russia feel threatened or is it an aggressive expansionist power that has to be stopped? Um, I can go into more details and examples of why I think it does feel threatened and how we've got Russia dangerously wrong. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mary. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to let you um, uh, both uh, run on because obviously there's so much to cover and so much to, to get an overview of. Um, now, look, there's, as I said earlier, I think really we should uh, get out to the audiences quickly as possible. So if anybody's got any questions, comments, we'll take questions and comments in a kind of group. So I'll take several at a time. There's of course much we could uh, cover, but feel free to pick up the speakers on anything they've said or anything they haven't said, including maybe the possibility of a more kind of uh, optimistic resolution to the current crisis. So I'll just take people in the order that they put their hands up. Uh, so first, uh, Kerry Dingle. Hi, thanks very much um, for organizing this and uh, to Mary and Frank for their great insights. I've just got a few questions. Firstly, I just wonder what you both see as different really to say, you know, Blair using Iraq to boost a domestic moral authority um, or Cameron in Libya and Boris now in Britain. You know, I, Frank's and, and Mary have sort of outlined the situation and a lot's changed, but it does seem to be very much the same moral grandstanding. So I wonder if you feel it's very different or more dangerous or more or less likely to end in uh, conflagration. Mary, I wondered if you can tell us, I mean, we've read in the press that Ukrainians are, would like the West to stop the fear mongering and that they're not, um, taken you know polls show that they don't believe russia is about to invade but i wonder what the russians on the ground are they is it a similar thing you know are they are they nervous are they fearful i know you said russia as governmentally feels threatened but i wonder what uh, russians are thinking um i i well frank i wondered if well maybe you'd know and tell us about you know we know that putin and orban have been in conversation um, what's Hungary's relationship? Because it doesn't, we don't seem to have heard a lot of, of, of what, what's happened there. And then on the US, if either of you are able to clarify things, to what extent has Russia bashing and the vilification as the great evil um, of, of Russia, is that on a par with China bashing or has it gone to new heights? Do you know what I mean? Because it seems that the last few years it's been China bashing, China bashing, and now it's Russia bashing. 
And um, I, just lastly, I, I am shocked, I must say that I can't, and I've flipped through many channels, perhaps RT aside, um, every morning, the news feels like one big lie in that this invasion is about to happen. I haven't for a long time, probably since um, the Balkans, felt that every day was one big lie in the news because there is no questioning going on or in terms of what's really happening. And I wondered if you've got any thoughts on that. Uh, Carrie, a good overview of uh, the huge amount of ground that we really need to cover in, in this discussion. Uh, so next up is Kevin Moore. I'm just going to pick up on what Frank said right at the very start. Um, he speaks of confusion at current events. Uh, now, I'm ex-military. You can kind of gather that from the Royal Signals post at the back of the wall. Um, is Russia in actual position to invade Ukraine? Force ratio says not a chance. It would be skirmish, bloody, deadly, horrible, but skirmish. There wouldn't be able to invade with the supposed 125,000 they've got on the border. Um, in response to what Mary said about um, about taking views, and you know, you could be for with Russia and then you're against Ukraine or vice versa. Now, I've actually spoke to members uh, from both countries on both sides, and I'm personally, uh, I'm taking the view that uh, of all sides in this, uh, so I'm not drawing any personal conclusions as yet, because the feeling I'm getting from the Russian side is they haven't got a clue what's going on, especially of the age generation between 20 and 40. They're scratching their heads going, what, why are we there? And yet there's the, the other side of, for me, I'm actually in agreement with what was said about um, the escal escalation uh, of whether it's going to be offensive, defensive, especially with the papers being released, of um, where does Russia draw the line? But the question for me is, what is Russia's end goal? What do they want to happen? I mean, there's been a couple of suggestions. About, I mean, please, God, no, a Berlin-style wall. I mean, nobody wants to see one of them again. And the question, and the question, has NATO gone too far? I think the answer to that is clearly yes, especially with those two documents that have been released. So. The question for me is how can we de-escalate this situation? Because um, I think Frank's right uh, in regards to, let's just say our diplomats are not what they were of say 30, 40 years ago. I don't think they have the same, I'm gonna use the words moral fiber today of what they did then. So yeah. I wanna say thank you and I'll leave it there. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Um, so we'll take two more and then we'll, we'll get Frank and um, Mary back. There's already a lot to unpack. But so Phil Hammond. Thanks. Uh, it's mainly for Frank. Uh, Frank, you suggested that a sort of pursuit of, of an articulation and pursuit of national interest would be a, a kind of a, a better uh, way to go in, in foreign policy than the current kind of um, post-liberal cosmopolitanism. Um, but could you not say that some of the, at least some of the intra-Western divisions uh, derive from attempts to assert a kind of national interest? I'm thinking particularly of 
um, the attitude of European powers vis-a-vis -vis the US in relation not just to Ukraine but also other kind of policy questions um, in Eastern Europe. Often the EU as a body or individual uh, leading EU states like Germany or France seem to want to assert a kind of national um, uh, independent policy that, that goes against what the US is saying. And by the same token, perhaps the, I mean, I take your point that the kind of influence of civil society actors and NGOs and so on is, is not helpful. But um, maybe the, 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 the foreign policy, um, inexperienced foreign policy establishments are buying into that stuff because there is no other available political framework through which to try and articulate a kind of common cause that will pull rival Western powers to come along and join in with um, uh, their favoured uh, policies. That's it. Thanks, uh, Phil. So uh, take Giovanna and then we'll get our speakers back. So, um, on what has been uh, said uh, tonight, I, I tend to agree uh, with, uh, with Mary in the sense that uh, Russia uh, um, has a legitimate concern about the expansion of NATO. Because remember, the United States has a moron doctrine, which will never allow any forces or naval forces to come closer to the United States. So that is, that is uh, realist geopolitics. So from that perspective of geopolitics, uh, of realist politics, uh, uh, Russia has a legitimate concern about the expansion of NATO, because when we're talking about NATO, especially uh, since the end of the Cold War, we're talking about a military alliance to control all the rapid reaction forces in Europe and also in the United States, nuclear weapons, uh, nuclear weapons and all the missiles uh, positioning in Europe. So we're talking about something very, very um, important. And Russia has always had a concern. Remember, 2008, Georgia, the Georgia war was very similar to a situation. When I see what's happening now, I've always had in my mind Georgia, 2008, when after the Bucharest NATO summit, and NATO made explicit that they would expand Bulgaria and other countries, also Georgia and, and also Ukraine, uh, there was a section of the US establishment who, like in, 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 in Ukraine right now. So they have special forces which were supporting the government and they were instigating, they, you know, there was military presence and Russia stationed a massive amount of troops at the border and it did a blitzkrieg, uh, a blitz war, which lasted 10 days where they went in, they bombed and they just made sure that the country was partitioned into two. In fact, Georgia uh, was partitioned. So when I look at the events right now, I think, uh, you know, there is it's a very dangerous situation because what happened in Georgia could happen again because Russia feels threatened and they could be willing. On one hand, I understand what Mary says, that there are all these big issues about security issues and things like that. And maybe Russia see that the US is weak because it just withdrew from, from Afghanistan, etc. etc. But the, the fact that they are positioned the, the forces, they could have a plan also to split the country into two because the country is not united. You got to, we got to remember what happened during the war. The country is in two parts, Russian speaking and Ukrainian. It's already split. So I just wonder if you could say something more about that Great. in relation to what happened in Georgia. Yeah. 
Thank you, Giovanna. Yeah. Very, very helpful. No, a helpful bit of uh, context. Um, so I'll head over to uh, Frank and Mary and we'll get some quick responses. Uh, Frank first. Yeah, <clears throat> I don't think there's any comparison between the way domestic politics works in relation to Iraq or, or even to Libya, um, because Russia is not a, a small country like Iraq and Libya. There's never any uh, issue about invading Russia itself, but also because something very disturbing has happened since that time, which is that Russia has become implicated by various security players in Britain and, and the United States in their domestic politics. So just think of the number of times Russia has been criticized for interfering in the election of France, interfering in the uh, election of Trump. Russia is responsible for Brexit. I mean, all the ways in which uh, there's been a, a kind of uh, domestic internalization of the Russian threat. And what you also have, and that's very interesting, we haven't discussed until now, are big divisions about it because sections of the right-wing Republican Party is pro-Russian, whilst the Democrats and the Republicans, the, the, the more centrist Republicans, are anti-Russian in terms of their outlook at the moment. And you have very similar divisions in many, many parts of Europe. So the situation is really very different than it was in the past. And that indicates to us that it's almost like a new situation, because you have both China and Russia being active economic players within these societies rather than just being out there. They're, Russia and China, America, the West are completely interlocked in the global economy and therefore to actually separate that in terms of a war and anything of that sort will have very major implications for everybody concerned. Um, somebody asked a question about Putin and Orban. It's a very interesting question because although Mary is right, Ukraine is a very nice place to go to. If you go to a very cheap you go to Lviv and all these other places. And although the government of the Ukraine is relatively more enlightened than the previous ones, they have made a few mistakes. One of the mistakes they made is in terms of their minority policy. For example, uh, a lot of Hungarians feel aggrieved that Hungarian education is being abolished. So Hungarian schools are being forced to teach in Ukrainian rather than in Hungarian. And it does create a certain amount of tension, but by and large, Hungary is, is one of those countries that has become very reliant on Russia strategically in terms of oil and energy, and therefore a certain modus vivendi has been established, um, which I think um, is quite interesting because Hungary has always been uh, almost viscerally anti-Russian, given the his history of being invaded by Russia on more than two occasions in the recent era. So there is a kind of uh, weirdness that goes on in relation to these three. I think that uh, just a, a final point um, on European national interests. Well, European national interests may well be asserted formally, but in a very feeble and, and a weak kind of a way. So you also have a situation where people are hiding behind the European Union, where Germany tries to almost kind of be a neutral player but by being a neutral player, what it indicates is that it wants to maintain uh, uh, the status quo in terms of cultivating its relationship with Russia. Uh, France would like to be the, the main interlocutor with Russia in Europe. So that's the natural alliance, the French 
Russian alliance is a natural alliance that it sees in terms of history. And as far as Britain is concerned, I don't think Britain is very clear what it's trying to do. It's trying to forge an alliance with Poland and some of the local players against Russia. But I think what is very sad is that the two English-speaking countries are the ones that are least able to have a rational assessment of what the situation is at the moment. And I don't think what, uh, what Johnson is doing is entirely influenced by domestic policy concerns and domestic pressures, a way of avoiding having to account for his behavior. I think that there is a genuine uh, sort of uh, uh, confusion and uh, averging on hostility towards Putin, which is partially culturally driven. I think one of the things that is, hasn't been discussed enough is that the people in the Foreign Office or in the State Department are the cultural opposite to the kind of values that the Russian government uh, stands, stands for. And I think one of the issues that hasn't really been brought out is that underneath or behind these geopolitical conflicts that we've been discussing is also a kind of uh, embryonic global culture war, uh, which has got to do with values, which uh, has been recognized by people all over the world as being really quite important, but which precisely because it's about culture, can acquire a very dangerous form uh, once uh, once things begin to explode a little bit. Thanks, Frank. And Mary, some thoughts? Oh, yes. So many questions. So many fantastic questions. Um, I'm, I'm going to start from the, um, from the last one. It was about spheres of influence and the split in Ukraine. Um, I absolutely agree on spheres of influence. For some reason, um, the United States in particular took an official position that spheres of influence were something very, very bad. And if Russia wanted a sphere of influence, that was really even worse. And I think to a lot of people, not just me, this seems to be incredibly hypocritical um, because, I mean, Giovanna um, referred to the Monroe Doctrine. Um, but it, it, it's not just that, but you, you look back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, you look to the attempt that um, the United States had to um, do a bit of regime change in Venezuela, um, then Russia does, uh, sorry, America does interfere colossally in its backyard if it sees that there are forces that it thinks are hostile to the United States that are, that are growing in influence. So the idea that that's sort of okay for the United States, but it's not okay for Russia, um, I think really, um, you know, there needs to be a bit more honesty about this. Um, on the question of the split in Ukraine, yes, um, I would say certainly for a very long time, um, Ukraine was split really down the middle, um, practically through Kiev, um, as to whether it looked east or west and whether it wanted to look east or west in the future. Now, my experience of going to Ukraine over the last 10 years or so has been that that line between looking west and looking east has moved to the east so that you've got much more of Ukraine looking to the west than you have looking to the east. And I think to some extent, um, the, the war in the east, which is often referred to as being um, by separatists, it's not really by separatists. I think there's much more of an analogy with, um, with Northern Ireland. 
um, it's more that there is a that that, that there's a, that there's a dispute which in which two sides have taken to taken to arms between different cultures, different cultural directions, and that the the now much smaller group of Ukrainians who look to the east rather than looking to the west or looking to the centre of Ukraine. Um, that they feel very beleaguered and they want their interests um, defended. Um, but I think that the fact that they they did take to arms, the fact that they are receiving support of some kind, though I think not nearly as much as, um, as the West claims uh, from Russia, um, illustrates in fact that, 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 that the bulk of Ukraine is actually more united than it was. I also think that the results of the last election of the presidential election when Zelensky won, he won this colossal landslide right across Ukraine, which there was almost no division between east, west, and center. And there was only one, there was only one part of the a very small part, which was the really the constituency and the fiefdom of the of the former president who Zelensky defeated, Petro um, Poroshenko. It was only his home area that actually voted against um, Zelensky in the last presidential election. And I think in some ways, um, Russia, by being so hostile to, to Ukraine in recent years, has actually pushed um, its, its policies have been counterproductive in that it's, it's alienated a lot of Ukrainians and made them think that maybe their future is in looking more to the West um, than to the East. So I think, I think, I think that um, when, when Russia comes to look at its policies towards Ukraine um, in the fullness of time, it may see how counterproductive that's been. I think I'll, I'll address Kerry's point about, about the big lie. I mean, I have to say, I, I did not understand for, for at least three weeks. I had the same thing. I was listening to the radio every morning. I was watching television and it seemed to me that it, that it was a, 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 it was a driven propaganda orchestration telling us um, that we were being threatened by Russia and Russia was about to invade and there was no other view. And, you know, I, I tweet quite enthusiastically, but I, I tweeted a million times more and a million times more enthusiastically than I had done before, because I felt that, I, that, 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 there, was, that, that there was this consensus that was being built and that, was, that, that there was this sort of attempt to, to, to dominate um, public opinion and that there was, that there was no there was no opposition to this being heard and so I was putting out all these tweets and I, I think maybe um, I would say that in the last 10 days only the last 10 days the BBC at least has started maybe partly to understand that it was giving a very um, it was giving a really um, uncontested and to my mind very propagandistic version of what was happening and two things happened to that one of them was that it started to make much greater use of Steve Rosenberg, their correspondent in Moscow, who seems to me to take quite a, a moderate and realistic view and who was giving, a, 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 at least presenting a view of how it looked from Moscow. Um, and the other thing was that some British correspondents were going to Kiev and that addresses another point, um, which suddenly all the correspondents who got to Kiev said, oh my goodness, you know, 
this is not what we expected. We expected to find Ukraine preparing for war. What we're finding instead is that Kiev and most of Ukraine is entirely calm and saying, you know, don't get too overwrought about it. And Zelensky himself has been on record several times as saying, we're keeping calm here. And we actually don't appreciate the extent to which the Americans and the British have been, uh, in their view, hyping this threat, which has, which has made, which in their view has been counterproductive and has been incredibly dangerous. And one of the things, that was one of the things that Zelensky said at his press conference last week, he said, please calm down the rhetoric. And I think to an extent we have seen just over the last weekend really, how the rhetoric has calmed down. The Americans have actually made a point of saying they're dropping the word imminent because it's been misinterpreted. Um, and there's been a lot more talking going on both in public and behind the scenes. Mm. Um, so, okay, I'll, I'll leave it there. Thanks, Mary. Um, so yeah, more questions. Um, also, that to everyone in the audience, of course, feel free to ask more questions of clarification as well as making points. So we've got obviously some great uh, experts here and we'll uh, we can maybe shed a bit more light. So if there's something you don't understand, feel free to uh, ask that question as well as making points or criticisms and all the rest of it. Um, so first, over to Alex. I feel um, on extremely shaky ground with this question. Uh, so if, if you want to ignore me, please do, of course. Um, everything other than um, the articles written by Mary and Frank recently, everything that I've read, whether it's for the UK press or America, has left me absolutely um, bamboozled in the sense that it seems that very few people know why this is happening or can even pitch a decent reason um, why it's such a big issue and why um, uh, Western countries need to get involved. Um, so anything from quoting um, um, senior uh, military advisors in America um, who in the one moment will say it's an, an existential threat um, two paragraphs later will say, you know, it's never going to happen. So my reading of the situation leaves me in a place where I just think if they don't know what's going on, how am I supposed to? So my question, <laughs> which is, as I say, is on shaky ground, Frank kind of touched on it and made me think that maybe I shouldn't ask, but I kind of, it's, it's like a niche I need to get scratched, and that is, is there no sense whatsoever um, that all the Russia baiting at the moment, not to downplay the reality of the situation, but the Russia baiting that's going on, is there no sense that it's a kind of proxy propaganda war about China, or am I just losing it? Thanks, Alex. So uh, next up, uh, Manley, I think. Hi, yes, Martin. A uh, question really, uh, Frank spoke about uh, at some point, there'll be a, a realignment where Western diplomacy can start to articulate a national interest, a more rational approach. And I wonder where will that will, will, will come from because the approach of the Europeans and the US is so incoherent and defensive. So when Biden talks about they're dispatching 3,000 troops to Poland, Germany, and to Romania, that's nothing. And they first say that they won't be going to the Ukraine. So it's almost like each announcement is very, very defensive 
you know, they, they kind of stress what they're not going to do, as well as uh, moving some boards around, some, some players around. But my, my question is, how do, how do you see that the West and then under the US and um, will start, will there be a, a realignment of them asserting national interest? Are they capable of doing that? Because I agree with Mary that I think Russia is attention seeking in an attempt to be taken seriously in its own sphere of influence between NATO and itself. And with the, with the US not taking it seriously, then it will go more and more towards China, who actually does take it seriously. And in moving forward, China has a way in the East of articulating its a national interest, their interest in a very confident way, whereas the West is very incoherent. So what, what will bring that realignment? Uh, last, last point briefly is Trump tried crudely to assert a national interest for America towards Russia. Uh, and to other places in terms of sanctions, uh, relationships, it, it didn't really work. So what is the basis for a more rational uh, realignment of Western diplomacy? Thanks a lot. Uh, very helpful. On to uh, Sabina. Yeah, just a little um, observation from um, this country, which is Germany. And um, I'm actually not quite sure, Mary, that Germany and the German press has been so much, so very different. So we've had a lot of warmongering in this, on this side here too. And one thing which I find just uh, really weird is the kind of fixation on the person of Putin. So it's almost like, you know, everything. It's not Russia. People are not saying it's not Russia. It's Putin. Putin is described as a devil. So I've heard a serious radio commentator actually referring to him as a devil, almost like the kind of, um, you know, reimagining of, of a dark empire as if we're kind of in a, in a, in a game of war or whatever. Um, and um, it's sort of like, almost like as if, if Putin was gone, maybe things might be better. Um, and that kind of, that, that links into the cultural war point which Frank made, because then you have the other side, you have um, for quite some years now, the German right, people from Pegida or from, even from the AFD being actually Putin fans, where you see people going on demonstration, holding up Putin posters. So it all seems really, really messy to me. Um, I just wanted to kind of ask what you know, what, you know, how we could make sense of that because it seems very, very infantile. Um, and the last question I have is, or the second question I have is, um, how can we get out of this? And I've been reading some articles here, arguing that the only country which could help us get out of this whole thing is Ukraine itself. So Ukraine saying, actually, we don't want to be members of NATO. We've changed our mind because we're. You know, we know that we are just a battlefield of complete diverse interests and we can never win. Um, so my question is, is there a chance of that happening and why doesn't Ukraine actually do that? Why doesn't Zelensky say that? Thank you. Thanks, Sabina. A great last question about the agency of Ukraine in this. Uh, Roger, and then we'll come back to Mary and Frank. My goodness, I've, 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 I think Putin would be perfectly happy if um, to achieve what he wants to achieve by diplomatic um, means. I think he'd be very happy to just, um, for the Minsk two agreements to sort of go forward, um, which, 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 which wasn't very sort of um, helpful for Ukraine. Um, what is really worrying me at the moment is um, that they, rather than incompetence on, on the American side, is they actually are trying to sort of um, pro provoke a proxy war. And, and so that the, the Putin, that there's an acceptance that he'll probably get what he wants, 
but they wanted to be at a cost, and that cost being at a, a, a much reduced military capacity, thanks to the Ukrainians. Um, I hope I'd like to think I'm wrong. I'm, I'm sure, but I'm, I'm probably a lot of you will tell me as I am. But I am. It does worry me. And the the other thing to remember is, is it wouldn't do uh, Biden, the Biden family themselves, any harm for a regime change in Ukraine in terms of a different sort of, um, um, you know, not so long ago there was there were special prosecutors looking to, looking into into um, Biden activities there. That's it. Thank you. Thanks, Roger. Okay, so uh, maybe first to Mary and then over to Frank first time. Oh yes, so many, so, so many again, so many wonderful questions. Um, the the Putin phenomenon. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the Putin phenomenon is. I mean, it is just extraordinary. I've I, I just actually wrote the latest of however many articles I've written on this subject about why Putin has got this image of being the sort of all powerful, the czar-like figure who's malevolent, who is, as you say, the devil incarnate. You look at the cartoons that there are of Putin. Seems to me that the West is really guilty of having. Um, magnified Putin out of all proportion, and that we've now created this, we, we, we've created this bogeyman that we've now made ourselves scared of, and that really there's got to that there's got to be a rethinking about this because it's not that Putin and Russia are different. If Putin were to were, were, were to were, were to be um, out of power tomorrow, Russia would still be there, and the 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 complexion of Russia, the political complexion of Russia, social complexion of Russia, would be identical to how it is today. Putin's uh, Putin's um, concern for national security and, and and things like that is is representative of Russians' own concern for that. By getting rid of Putin, you won't improve things on that score. It could actually get worse. So I think really we have to decide to treat Putin as a normal national leader. I mean, in some ways, I think Trump was the was the person who got who, who got the measure of Putin best because he appreciated that he was a national leader with the national security and national interests of Russia at heart. And he wanted to deal with him on that basis. Um, and almost no other leader has been prepared to do that. But you've got to treat it, but Putin as a, a as a normal national leader, not as some sort of um, superhuman phenomenon um, or as the devil incarnate. Um, I think also, I, th I think in connection with that, just going back to the United States, I think maybe there's another um, way of reading. Um, uh, somebody said, well, you know, are they are they trying to provoke a war um, between Russia and Ukraine to, to, to weaken Russia or, what, or whatever? Um, I think you could look, look at it in a completely different light and say that maybe while Russia has been maybe trying to test um, Biden as president, maybe Biden has at the back of his mind that he actually wants to try and normalize relations with Russia. But he saw what happened to Trump when, when Trump wanted to do that. And so while trying to trying to start negotiations with Putin on various topics, including um, security issues in Europe, maybe he has to send a message to his own people um, to say, look, I'm 
absolutely as tough on Russia as I can be. And that maybe some of the explanation for that really um, harsh and completely unrealistic rhetoric that was coming about that all the war talk that was coming from Washington and London in over the last month, maybe some of that can be explained by um, by Biden trying to, as it were, to square um, his only his own anti-Russian anti people in, in, in the Washington establishment. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think you could necessarily rule that out. Um, I'd just like to refer to another question. There was a, one of Kerry's questions that was asked, which was about um, Russian opinion and Ukrainian opinion. I think um, we've seen quite a bit recently about, um, most recently about Ukrainian opinion and being um, really relatively calm and saying, essentially, we've been at war for the last eight years, one way or another. And yes, it could get worse, but we're prepared for it. We've trained for this, we're, 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 we're prepared for it. And we don't want anybody from outside um, making matters worse. I think in Russia, um, I saw something today that said, actually, the whole subject of Ukraine has hardly figured in, um, in Russian new news broadcasts over the last few days, which suggests that it may be calming down from Russia's side as well. But there have been opinion polls done on um, Russian views about um, going to war at all and going to war with Ukraine. And public opinion in Russia is very hostile to the idea. It doesn't want to go to war with anybody. Why would it? Um, there's enough people in Russia today who remember um, the Russian defeat and retreat from Afghanistan, which was one of the factors in the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, many people had friends, relatives, the children of relatives who fought in that war, people who didn't come back. Um, that's, the, that's the most recent memory for most, for most Russians of a war fought by Russia. There's the war, two wars fought in Chechnya. Um, Russians, Russians don't want to fight, and particularly, I would say, that they don't want to fight Ukrainians. I mean, the, the, the intermingling of Russians and Ukrainians, one of the whole problems with, with, with the Ukrainian border is that it's, it was never really properly demarcated in the in Soviet era. People crossed to and fro without, without any say-so, that people worked on the other side of the border, intermarriage, into relatives live on either side of the border. In that respect, it's, again, it, it has things in common with Ireland. So drawing, demarcating a firm border between Russia and Ukraine, as would happen if peace actually, if the, if peace negotiations actually eventually succeed, you know, that's not something that's going to be universally welcomed. But at the same time, um, the idea that there would be Russians fighting Ukrainians, that's, that, that, that's not welcome on either side of the border. Thanks, Mary. Uh, Frank, some thoughts. And then audience, we'll come out for an, another quick round of uh, questions. So do raise your hand using the function uh, if you'd like to. The Putin phenomenon is very, very significant. And it symbolizes the uh, failure of Western diplomacy more than anything. Because one of the things that has happened in the last 25, 30 years, is that Western diplomacy has had a problem dealing with strong national leaders. It regards uh, 
national leaders who take the sovereignty and the interest of their nation seriously are somehow, by definition, defective. And if you look at the, the language that is used about Putin, in a minor way, a very similar language is used, especially in Germany, towards Orban, who's seen as this little devil incarnate, and also towards Erdogan for very similar reasons. Now, a lot of people in the West don't seem to understand that whatever you think of different strong leaders, however much you don't like them, it's not the job of your government to get rid of them, or it's not the job of your government to target them as individuals. And if you look at the stupidity of American and British foreign policy, I don't know if you noticed it, but whenever they make any announcements of what they're going to do, whenever they're going to impose sanctions, they immediately say, you know, the members of the Russian elite will pay a heavy price. In other words, they personalize it to different so-called rich Russian oligarchs who are going to become punished in the first instance. So the, the idea becomes that the way you play the diplomatic game, the way you kind of crack down, is by targeting individuals and making them pay an economic price. Because the assumption is, is that these uh, leaders of, of Russia are so venal, all they care about is money, that if, if they understand that their pocket is going to be hit, they're going to roll over and that will be it. And that's kind of illusion, uh, that kind of pers personal, personalized way of, of running dip diplomacy represents, I think, a very important statement about just how people think uh, uh, geopolitics works in the 21st century. I think that the way that national interests will be realigned is if, if and when the present trends continue. Um, and it's likely that if the present trends continue, then you're going to have a, a much more degree of economic conflict than is the case at the moment. I think we're seeing the, the unraveling of a globalized world economy. A lot of the tensions that are at play at the moment will be linked to economic rivalries and conflicts. You can already see that being played out on the world stage. And when that becomes even sharper and more defined, I think at that point, governments will have to think about you know, what it is that they have to defend. How, how should they begin to uh, reframe their external policies? Because at that point in time, they will realize that national interests are something that you cannot just abandon or, or not take seriously. You're really going to sit down and work out a way of giving that some kind of definition. And I think that will eventually happen, but we're fairly far away from that. I just want to say one thing about the Ukraine, which is that one of the problems, I mean, that we're kind of confronting with is that Ukraine is actually, despite the unity, the political unity of the Ukraine, is, is in a relatively weak and fragile economic position. And you literally have millions of people, especially the young, the most educated section of Ukrainian population, all moving westwards, all going to Poland, to Hungary, to, you know, where, wherever they can go. In fact, I, I haven't got the statistics here, but the percentage of the population that has left Ukraine in recent years is phenomenally high even higher than in Bulgaria and Romania, which until now were the main, main exporters of people. So it, not only have you got 
a large number of uh, migrant, the most important people emigrating in the Ukraine. What you also have is a demographic bust in the Ukraine. In other words, the, the, the rate of, of, of birth in the Ukraine is, I think, even lower. I'm not really sure than in Russia, where, where it is already very, very low. And I think all these things are indicators of the fact that within the Ukraine itself, there are some very big problems, which means that the room for maneuver of, of Ukraine to be genuinely acting with agency is relatively limited at this stage in time. And I think that's something that we should, that's calculate that point, I think we should always remember because it, it, it tells us that one way, or the, one way or the other, the Ukraine does need some kind of external support if it is to flourish as a democracy and if it is to maintain its national sovereignty, something that I think all of us in this discussion uh, are very much behind. Thanks, Frank. Okay, so come out, I think, for one last round of questions. Anyone, again, wants to make any points, but also ask any questions, and I'll make sure that we can uh, give our speakers some time to, to address them in the wrap-up. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, I actually just uh, arrived back in the country from Bulgaria, where it was interesting to talk to people. I was chairing an event with the president and prime minister to ask to ask them what their, their view was. But as a result, I missed... Um, I missed Frank's introduction uh, and I caught most of Mary's. So sorry if I'm asking questions that have been answered already in the introduction. So I wanted to go back to this question that was raised at the well in different ways by, by various people, which is, you know, what is actually really going on here and what is Russia's end goal? I mean, I, I think we, you know, it's much clearer actually what the what the West is doing um, and maybe it's a bit and I haven't got complete you know completely clear in my mind what Russia's end goal is here so and the way I see it is um, in kind of layers of um, motivation here for what Russia's doing so I'd be interested to hear what Mary uh, thinks about this I mean first of all um, and I think it's important to understand that, um, you know, this has happened twice last year with this buildup of, of Russian forces al along the border. So, you know, what, what is really going on there? I think that part of it is that for a very long time now, all channels of communication and diplomacy and dialogue have been shut down. And that was particularly the case. I mean, that's happened really as a result of... Um, this increasingly kind of Russophobia that we've seen um, after the 2016 elections, the Brexit, Trump, and so on, and then obviously after the, um, you know, the killings here um, in, 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 in Salisbury, um, everything was shut down. And um, the only way in which Russia can actually get the attention of the, the West and actually assert its position in relation to its, what it perceives to be its interests and what's going on, is to, to do something uh, like this now. So what is the, the aim here? Is it about Ukraine? Is it just about preventing Ukraine's closer integration with NATO? Um, in a way, I think, um, obviously, Ukraine, this is not really about Ukraine. Obviously, to, to some extent, it's, it's about Ukraine, but this is not just about uh, Ukraine because actually, in terms of that goal of preventing Ukraine's integration with the West, that was already achieved, basically. That was done in, in 2014. 
and everybody knows that Ukraine is not going to to join um, to join NATO, um, and the annexation of Crimea and um, the creation of this enclave in eastern Ukraine means that, and then through the Minsk process, that uh, Russia has this kind of Trojan horse already in um, in Ukraine that will make sure that that never happens. Now, in the process, I agree absolutely with Mary that there be the it's done that at the cost of uniting Ukraine more than it's ever been before in its history and actually creating some sense, you know, a more kind of coherent sense of, um, of, of nationhood. But Frank is also right that uh, Ukraine is in a very, very weak position and actually everything that the West is doing is really exposing it um, and, and, and doing nothing uh, to, to, to help Ukraine at all. So I don't think it's just about preventing uh, Ukraine's closer integration. Um, I think it is about asserting Rus Russia's position as a great power that cannot be ignored, that has to be um, uh, involved in, in negotiations about security in Europe. And 2014 is important because that's the time actually when Russia was in, first in a position um, to start reasserting itself after the kind of humiliations of the kind of post-Soviet uh, years. Um, and that's what Putin's been trying to do ever since. And that's really the, the, the point here. Um, it's about getting the West to take Russia seriously, to enter into negotiations at the highest levels with the US and other uh, powers, um, and, to, and to actually reestablish those um, forums and challenge, uh, channels of communication. And I think Russia does have genuine security concerns. It does take two to tango and all its red lines have been crossed. It is being encircled. I think one very important thing that actually hasn't been discussed very much is the recent reactivation of a US artillery unit in Mainz Castell in Germany, uh, which will have been viewed with great alarm by the Kremlin. And that's a crucial development as the unit will carry a hypersonic missile Dark Eagle, which obviously Russia considers to be a threat. So it's about this kind of what it sees as infringement of its sovereignty all the time um, uh, by NATO. But the final thing that occurred to me that it's also about Russia's relationship with China. Now, the idea that uh, Russia can really have any kind of genuine alliance with China is, is, is a nonsense as far as I've can see, you know, Russia will never want to play second fiddle uh, to China. Um, and a big concern of Putin and the Russians is to make sure that they do everything possible to um, enhance their own security and their position on the international stage, and particularly in their own backyard where China is increasingly encroaching, which Russia resents uh, uh, very great, greatly. So I think in all these different ways, these are the kind of these are the motivations of Russia. And unfortunately, as for other powers, um, this is a very high risk uh, uh, strategy um, uh, for, for both sides, and it can have unforeseen uh, consequences as well. Some of the ones, uh, some of which um, Mary's mentioned already. Thanks, uh, Joan. Very helpful. I mean, and you can actually see the China thing playing out even in Ukraine, where if you go, there's loads of Chinese cars in a way there isn't 
uh, almost anywhere in Europe. And so that's even playing out e even in Ukraine. I wanted to read, somebody's messaging me asking if I could read out questions. So let me just, I'll do that. I'll, I'll follow up one of my own and then we'll get um, our speakers to sum up. So as somebody's messaging me saying, uh, could they comment on the fact that um, uh, it's been said that NATO is a marketing strategy for the arms industry. And so is this anti-Russian hysteria um, a campaign and a kind of justification for US military uh, budgets in an attempt to make NATO countries kind of uh, buy more American arms. Um, I'd like as well just to ask our speakers in the summing up to maybe assess the prospects, even if uh, the kind of longer term trends that you've talked about play out as said, just kind of the shorter term prospects for this series of negotiations, because it seems to me, at least from the uh, leaked kind of responses of the Americans to those Russian treaties that Mary mentioned, it seems that they, that the Ameri at least some people in the American establishment are taking a slightly more constructive view with regards to negotiations with Russia. Um, Biden made, a, as a lot was made of Biden's kind of position as somebody with genuine foreign policy expertise and him being a slightly more old fashioned kind of leader who would be prepared to negotiate with these things and also is desperate to solve the, or at least uh, as, as far as he can be desperate on anything given his overall sluggishness, but seems kind of eager to solve that issue and move on genuinely to the China issue. So is, I mean, these longer term trends that you both talk about may well play out, but is there some kind of cause for optimism in the near term that these things might get solved in a, at least in a kind of way that is productive at least in the kind of short or medium term but um anything else that you guys uh would like to sum up on um I, again maybe I'll, I'll do it the, the the same way so mary can i come to you first oh how difficult um let me take the, the the question of ukraine's economy i think is very very un, very important um and one of the things that i think wasn't really appreciated early on um in the democracy movements in ukraine is that ukraine after the collapse of the soviet union ukraine is a poorer country than russia and people generally don't see that because they that the, outside ukraine and outside russia they see Ukraine as, as it were, a bit more European than Russia. And so the assumption is that it's richer than Russia. And it's not. All you have to do is cross this, the, the border that I was referring to as quite invisible. Um, but it's immediately apparent that Ukraine, except for, for, for Kiev, is a poorer country. Now, it's quite, a, it, it, it's urban areas of, uh, of uh, are, um, very, very livable. You can you can have a decent standard of living in in cities in Ukraine, but the but the average standard of living, average facilities, and the look of the country. It is a poorer country than Russia, and that that needs to be borne in mind. And it was it was interesting that Zelensky's press conference last week, where he said. On the one hand, stop talking up this war. This is counterproductive. It makes things less secure than they already are. At the same time, he put out a plea saying, one of the reasons we want everybody to keep calm, we don't need a war. Our economy is weak. He was, he was saying that they'd lost all sorts of prospective promises of investment just in the last 10 days. And he said you know, he, he, he didn't sort of strike um enormous he was obviously trying to calm things down but 
this has been extraordinarily damaging for Ukraine's economy. And I, I don't think that that was what America intended. I don't think it's what Russia intended by having, the, by having the troops there. But that's been the effect on Ukraine, and potentially that is devastating. Um, about sanctions and um, Russian oligarchs and Russian money, it's always struck me as, uh, and I, I saw somebody saying again earlier this week that say what we really need to do is we really need to have sanctions on individuals who are close to Putin and then they'll go to Putin and they'll say, look, we can't stand for this. Um, you've got to change your policy. That, to my mind, is complete. I mean, th that is just completely absurd. The idea that there are people close to Putin who are going to who are going to say, look, the, 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 the Brits are making all sorts of restrictions and they're threatening, threatening to take my visa and my property away. Now you've got to change your policy. That is not how Putin works. That's not how the Kremlin works. And that's that, 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 that's the, the idea that there are people in that position to influence Putin in that way, I think is, is just a complete misreading of the situation. I put together um, what is Russia's endgame, why now, and what are the prospects? Um, I think one of the reasons why now is because Russia was actually getting very worried, first of all, that there were no talks going on. Second of all, that Ukraine was going somehow to be fast-tracked into NATO. And uh, as Joan said, I absolutely agree with her. Um, what's going on at the moment is not only about Ukraine. It's partly about Ukraine, but it's about Ukraine as a sort of symptom of the much bigger processes in Europe that Russia sees this new border coming up along its borders, which is separating it from the rest of Europe. Um, and I think that's that that's what's at stake there. And why now? Because because Russia's Russia thinks that it's it's more urgent than it was because Ukraine is closer um, to being as absorbed into the in, into the Western Bloc. And it, I think it was about six weeks ago, it was it was before Christmas sometime, I heard um, Putin for the first time that I can remember talking of Ukraine's NATO membership, prospective NATO membership, as being a red line for Russia. I'd never heard him say that before. I may be wrong, but I'd never heard him say that before. And I think that's behind um, some of what's going on now. Russia's end goal, I think, is new security arrangements for Russia. I think it's worth reading those draft treaty documents to see what Russia's, as it were, what Russia's ideal position is while recognizing that that's, that's not going to happen. But some of it, I think, may happen. I mean, the, the um, as uh, as you said, um, I don't think Russia's uh, either Russia's response or America's response to um, to those documents has been quite as negative as it's been as we've been uh, encouraged to think that there are talks starting. And there are things like um, one of the things that Russia, Russia wanted quite specifically was um, disengagement of troops on either side, not just on either side of the Ukrainian border, but on either side, as it were, of the NATO border and the Russia border. And that would, of course, be restrictions on deployments of troops and weapons, which Russia would have to observe as well. This would this would be this would be bilateral. Um, so I think there the, the, there is something in there for the Western side as uh, uh, as well as for Russia. 
um, and that the prospects of reaching some sort of agreement can't be written off, which is where I think things are going at the moment. And also, I mean, my, my assessment, and I may be completely wrong about this, but my assessment is that the, the big crisis point in, um, in what we've been talking about, the Ukraine crisis over the last few weeks, was actually reached in about the middle of last week. And on Thursday, we saw, Thursday of last week, we saw Putin go to St. Petersburg and pay his respects for the 78th anniversary of the end of the siege of Leningrad. And Putin, as a St. Petersburger, a Leningrader, he, he, he goes there every year for that ceremony, for that commemoration. But I think the prominence that it was given and Putin's demeanor on those sort of occasions, that said to me that Russia was trying to send a signal that it did not want war. Whatever was going on, it did not want war. On the Thursday, well, on, on the Friday, we saw a succession of um, press briefings and meetings. We had the, um, the Secretary General of NATO, we had the um, meeting between Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and Blinken, the US Secretary of State in Geneva. And we had um, the long press conference that I've referred to several times by Zelensky in Kiev. And it seemed to me that everybody basically was putting their position, um, was trying to clarify their position for the benefit of other parties in public without actually talking to them in direct. And it seemed to me that after that, we were looking at a rather different situation and a different atmosphere. So I hope I'm right. Thanks a lot, Mary, and, and thanks for your, your comments throughout. Okay, uh, Frank, over to you for the last one. I don't know what the end game of Russia is, but the one thing that I think it's very important for uh, for the Kremlin is to stabilize its role as a regional power and to gain international recognition for that. I think paradoxically, Russian uh, diplomacy has been much more successful in other parts of the world than in the regions around Russia. So, uh, you know, Russia's got a problem with, uh, with Kazakhstan. Russia's got problems with the uh, some of the instability in some of the Caucasian uh, areas. There's also the problem in Belarus, uh, which are very near its borders, and of course the Ukraine, whereas it's done really well in Syria, uh, it's done much better in the, in the Middle East, and it's done quite well in Africa in terms of establishing certain kind of bridgeheads and points of contact. So uh, in a sense for Russia, the, the near Russia area and stabilizing that is much more important than anything else. I don't think there will be a war, but I'm not uh, that sure that uh, things have uh, things are as settled as we hope. So, for example, just I think it was today or yesterday, we had another one of these American intelligence reports that claimed that the Russians are organizing a, a red, you know, sort of some kind of a, a an insidious operation to provoke a, a war within within the Ukraine. Um, and they seem to be continually pulling putting out these uh, intelligence reports that uh, purport to show what Russia is planning next week or the week after that. So that kind of provocation still exists. I think the the problem, as I see it, um, uh, some some of the points that that haven't been mentioned is is is, is best answered uh, if you can if you can find a solution to the question of 
who benefits from the crisis at the moment. And I don't see uh, either Russia or America or Britain or the West actually benefiting from this. Uh, nobody's got an interest in escalating these, uh, these tensions and conflicts. I think one of the problems that we have is that we also have a, a media that we haven't discussed that seems to be a law unto itself that is uh, that set on provoking greater and greater Russian phobia between Western societies. And that's something that we shouldn't ignore or its significance shouldn't be underestimated. But I, what I'm really worried about, the point I come back to time and time again, is, is when you have the intertwining of domestic politics with uh, external relations as you have in the United States, where Russia is seen uh, and, and, and discussed within the domestic political domain as a player, either as, a, as an opponent or as a supporter, you do fall into a, you know, a very big problem because it's very difficult to unravel the domestic calculations that different party operators make in the United States from what you do outside of that. And the thing that I'm most worried about is that given the uh, ascendancy of a moralizing impulse within Western diplomacy, I see that as a very dangerous development because when you moralize uh, geopolitics, that distracts people from pursuing their real interest. When the moral imperative acquires a certain amount of force, you know, it isn't just simply uh, expressed in, in relation to the Chinese Olympics, where you have this uh, boycott. Uh, essentially, to make a point to, to certain domestic players, certain domestic advocacy groups. Now, you can do that in relation to the Olympics, but when you do it fairly regularly, when that moralizing impulse becomes, you know, uh, is given far greater uh, latitude to express itself, then it makes it much more difficult to resolve the crisis because this always in interferes with uh, the decisions. And what I really worry about is that just when you get to the point of coming to an agreement, there will be all these domestic voices saying, oh, we've appeased uh, Putin, oh, we appeased the Chinese. You know, we haven't really uh, sort of uh, looked after the interests of a particular individual in either China or Russia, which then makes it much more difficult uh, for, uh, for geopolitical debates and discussions to take place on a rational basis. And that's one of the important and relatively new developments that we now have to take into our calculations of how the future will unfold. Great, thank you very much, uh, Frank. Thanks again, uh, Mary. I'm sure from, thanks from everybody, uh, really, for a very informative and useful uh, discussion. Um, uh, what I'd like to do just before I let everyone go is just uh, remind you again uh, that we at the Academy of Ideas are committed to holding these kinds of uh, public and open discussions where uh, we can thrash out some of these issues in a way that maybe uh, they don't get discussed elsewhere and we like to pride ourselves and think we do a relatively good job on that and if you agree and you'd like to help us put on more of those kinds of discussions uh, then please uh, you can donate to the Academy of Ideas you can also go on the Academy of Ideas website and sign up to our mailing list where you'll uh, hear about upcoming uh, events and other sessions you could also become an associate of the Academy of Ideas uh, where you could have a slightly closer relationship to us and uh, get discounted tickets and all the rest of it for our in-person events as and when they happen. 
Um, and then one further thing, which I just wanted to mention, an event that will be uh, coming up, which tickets have just gone on sale for uh, in July by the BOI charity, which I also work for, a charity I also work for. And that event is called uh, the Academy, where there will be a weekend of uh, talks and discussions and seminars. But the reason why it's relevant tonight is because we will be looking very much at the way that, especially after the pandemic and in this period, international uh, affairs and geopolitics has taken uh, a very different turn. Um, that link uh, is in the chat. Um, my colleagues put it there, I'll just put it there as well. But also, of course, uh, yeah, go to the Academy of Ideas website, sign up, stay in touch with us, you can follow us uh, on Twitter uh, as well. But thank you very much for tuning uh, in tonight uh, and stay tuned. We'll make sure we get this out as a podcast for any of you who uh, missed the beginning or the end or, or somewhere in the middle. But thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks again for uh, Mary and uh, Frank. Have a good evening. Everybody.